Good morning, everyone. Today we get to dive into 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most familiar portions of the entire Bible. In fact, next to John 3.16, it's probably the most widely recognized and quoted section of Scripture because of its majestic language and its lofty idealism around the issue of love. It's often called the love chapter. I had one person say to me that it would be better if I would have scheduled it to preach on this passage closer to Valentine's Day. And that makes sense because in most people's minds, 1 Corinthians 13 is about marriage and romance and weddings, right? I've used it in many of the weddings that I've performed, and you've probably heard it a million times at weddings you've attended, or even used it in your own wedding ceremony. We put it on greeting cards, write it on beautifully flowered calligraphy. Uh, it's cross-stitched on pillows and posted as a graphic on a thousand blogs. And often the expectation is, is that any sermon on this passage should be sort of a, a mini-marriage seminar, right? Well, I didn't want to burst her bubble, and I hope I don't shock you when I say that as originally written, 1 Corinthians 13 has absolutely nothing to do with romance, weddings, or marriage. Sorry, it, it really just doesn't. It may be beautiful, and what it teaches about love is applicable to our marriage relationships, but that is not why God put it in the Bible. The problem with this chapter is that it's so familiar, it loses its impact. It's like telling a joke where everyone already knows the punchline. Uh, it's easy to gloss over the intended meaning, easy not to really look at it deeply, so that what God is teaching us through the Apostle Paul kind of just becomes background noise. This chapter was written because of conflict. Conflict. It's sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14. And both of those chapters are there to help a troubled church learn to use its spiritual gifts in a Christ-like way and just to stop fighting over trivial things. Remember this young group of Christians in ancient Corinth. They were splintered by divisions. They were divided over their favorite teachers, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. They were, it was conflict between the races, between Jews and Gentiles. Economic disparity a kind of fueled tension between the rich and the poor. They argued over the roles of men and women with this new freedom of the gospel. Uh, the legalists battled against those who showed no personal restraint in their sexual or personal behavior. Uh, they argued over worship, how to use spiritual gifts, especially the more charismatic gifts like speaking in tongues or prophecy. So the intent behind chapter 13 is really just how to get these people to get along with each other. 1 Corinthians 13 is not specifically about marriage or romance. It's about koinonia. Koinonia, that's the Bible word for Christian fellowship, for, for relationships in the church, how people are supposed to relate to each other in the body of Christ. Koinonia is about Christian community. And this chapter gives the secret for building strong, healthy, godly relationships that will stand the test of time. Now, of course, marriages will benefit from what is taught here. But this is also a chapter for single people and divorced people and all kinds of people. It's a chapter about relationships, but especially about how Christians are to relate to each other. You can sort of say that Paul was like the very first church consultant called in to help to straighten out this troubled church. And he's kind of the church doctor. He's diagnosed the problem. And now 1 Corinthians 13 is his prescription. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, but also to us, if you want your relationships to work, and be healthy and be fulfilling, you need a mega dose of koinonia love. That's the excellent way of Jesus Christ. So let me read now, starting, I'll actually start in chapter 12 and then go on to chapter 13. Eagerly desire the more important gifts. But first, let me tell you about the most excellent way of all 
If I speak in the languages of humans and even angels, but do not love others, I'm only making noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all about what is going to happen in the future, know everything about everything, but do not love others, what good would it do? Even if I have the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, I will still be worth nothing at all without love. If I give away everything I have to poor people, and if I were even burned alive for preaching the gospel, but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatsoever. Love is patient and kind, never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy, does not hold grudges, and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. Love is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never stops being patient, never stops believing, never stops hoping. Love never gives up. All the special gifts and powers from God will someday come to an end, but love goes on forever. Someday prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and speaking uh, special knowledge, these gifts will disappear. Now we know so little and our preaching is so incomplete, but when we have been made perfect and whole, then the need for these inadequate special gifts will come to an end and they will disappear. It's like this, when I was a child, I spoke and thought as a child does, but when I became an adult, my thoughts grew far behind those of my childhood. I've put away childish things. In the same way, we can now see and understand only a little about God, as if peering at his reflection in a poor mirror. But someday we're going to see him in his completeness, face to face. Now all that I know is hazy and blurred, but then I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. These are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Amen. You know, Paul was discovering that the Christians in Corinth didn't know anything about what love really is. He discovered kind of a difficult truth that love is actually not natural. Love, unselfish, giving love, it's learned. Children don't naturally know how to love. They naturally know how to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. They will do it automatically, but you do have to teach them how to share. We learn about love in our families and homes. We learn how to love through our experience with others. We learn about love as we try to figure out how to interact with people. These new Christians had to learn how to love. These young followers of Christ were moving from non-faith to faith, from a life apart from God to a life where God was at the center. They were moving away from the world, from the way of the world to the Jesus way to Jesus' way of sacrificial love, to a new kind of community called the body of Christ. The Corinthians had never experienced anything like this. Paul was saying to them, your definition, your experience of love is all messed up. And so you need a new understanding, but also a new experience of love. Because, you know, in the ancient world, no one really cared for anybody who wasn't a part of their family or their close tribe. If someone wasn't part of your family, then that person's problems were none of your concern. You take care of your own and that's it. There was no Red Cross to help the injured, no aid societies to help the poor, no homes for the aged. Apart from your family, you're on your own. The idea that Jesus taught that we could love across cultural boundaries and barriers, that was completely unheard of. And so when rich and poor Christians met together as equals, non-Christians noticed. When men and women treated each other with a mutual respect and dignity, you know, the world noticed when people from different races and tribes and ethnicities all worshipped together and ate together and took care of each other, the world took notice. 
And we're in the same boat. Our world does not know how to love. Apart from Christ, our definition and our experience of love, it is all messed up. We need a new understanding of love and a new experience of love. Our world is crying out for authentic relationships because we don't even know what that is anymore. Just look at the way relationships are kind of portrayed so often on TV. Like the show The Bachelor. Is there anything sadder than this show where Joe Bachelor conducts a contest to see which young woman in a stable of contestants is worthy of his affection? What kind of person is so desperate for some kind of imitation love that they will prostitute themselves this way on national TV? And why do so many people get caught up in the faux drama? Our culture turns relationships into a freak show where we glorify relationships that have no chance of working out. Our world reduces love to a conquest, a game, a hookup, a pretense. We see that in the way we have stereotypical families on our TV screens, dysfunctional families paraded as though that's the best thing that anybody can hope for. We see people placed in workplace environments that are just all about manipulation and conflict. And what we really see is just brokenness all around, heartache and loneliness. Folks, the gospel tells us we need a new definition of love, a new experience of love. We need the way of Christ. And Paul brought this new understanding to the Corinthians, and God preserved it for us as his word. Paul wants them and us to have this, this new experience of community and relationship through Christ's body, the church. This relationship, this koinonia, it's to be a safe place, kind of a classroom, a crucible, to learn about real love, sacrificial love. That's one of the main purposes of the body of Christ. Paul ends chapter 12 with these words. He says, I will show you a more excellent way. I'm going to teach you how, what love is. And Paul starts with the negative on how not to love. Verses 1 through 3 describe the, the ugliness of Christianity without love. He says, if I speak in tongues of humans or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The trumpets and the cymbals he mentions here are veiled reference to pagan worship in Corinth. Because one of the popular things that they would do was that people would parade the statues of their gods through the streets and make as much noise as possible. In their superstition, you had to make a lot of noise in order to get God's attention. Or you made a lot of noise in order to drive away demons. For some reason, demons are afraid of noise. So it was Mardi Gras outside your window. And it was annoying to listen to this cacophony, irritating to other people in the city. It's sort of like you know a constantly barking dog. You don't mind it so much when it's your dog, but if it's your neighbor's dog, look out. Same thing in Corinth. When it's your temple, the noise is okay. But all those other temples, that's just an annoying nuisance. But Paul is saying that Christians are equally offensive when they use God's gifts or speak God's word without love. You have received great gifts from God, Paul says. Maybe you've got one of the more spectacular spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues or prophecy. But if there is no love in your voice, you are of no value in God's eyes. God cannot use a loveless Christian. Lovelessness repels people from the church and from the gospel. We need to remember this, especially in the public square and our conversations about politics and social issues. If there is no love in your voice, you're of no value in God's eyes. God cannot use a loveless Christian. And this is a huge problem in the church today. Christians who, who speak with no love in their voice. The tone is just as important as the words themselves. If it's condescending or sarcastic or belittling of others, that has no place in a Christ-led conversation. 
in my opinion, the lovelessness of many Christians is, is the biggest single obstacle to our church's witness. Jesus put it this way, as the first priority, love one another as I've loved you. By this others will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what he said. It's this observable love. If it's absent, there's nothing else that can compensate. A Christian can be highly gifted, admired, appreciated, applauded, even if a person or a group gets results. But if they do it without love, as far as God is concerned, there's nothing of value going on. People might make great sacrifices, give boatloads of money, even willingly become a martyr for the cause. And guess what? Without love as the motivating force, God is just not impressed. That's the negative in verses 1 through 3. And then Paul turns to the positive, the characteristics of love in verses 4 through 8. And he names 16 characteristics of love. In the Greek, they're all verbs. They're all actions to either do or refrain from doing. The message is clear from Paul. Uh, love is not just talk. God's kind of love will behave in certain ways. And here's the list. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Is not proud. Does not boast. Is not rude. Is not self-seeking. Is not easily angered. Love keeps no records of wrongs done. Does not delight in evil. Rejoices with the truth. Always protects and trusts and hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. I mean, that's quite a list. And my first reaction is, there's no way I can do all that. There's no way you can do all that. Of course not, not on our own. But rather than throw up our hands in failure and frustration and give up, the purpose of Paul's list is actually to drive us to Jesus, drive us towards him in our brokenness, to go to Jesus and say, I can't do this in my own. I've got anger issues. My stupid pride gets in the way. I do keep score. Sometimes I shave the truth for my advantage. I, I lash out at others. I, I use my words to wound. I, I give in to impulse. I react out of fear. I want patience, and I want it now. The easiest way to understand the deep meaning of this chapter is to reread that list, but substitute Jesus for the word love. Jesus is the ultimate love. He models it. He's the one who lived this way. Let me just reread that list with his name. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not act out of envy, does not boast, does not act out of pride. Jesus was never rude, was never self-seeking, was not easily angered. In his grace, Jesus did not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus keeps no records of wrongs done. Jesus always protects, always trusts. Jesus always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. How does that make you feel? All those love qualities are wrapped up in Jesus. All of these qualities are perfectly reflected in his life. And so he becomes our teacher and our model. And then you take the next step. Jesus wants all this to grow inside of you. He wants this kind of love, this patient, selfless, kind love to take root in our hearts and grow up like a well-watered garden. He wants the full blossom of these fruits in your relationships. Uh, you know, remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the end result of all that Christ wants to grow in you. And so the goal for us as followers of Jesus, as disciples, is to become like him. The goal is that we are to take on his personality. And as we grow spiritually, we're to become more and more like Jesus. That's really the definition of spiritual growth. You, you can't really grow spiritually and then become less and less like Jesus. If you're becoming less and less like Jesus, friends, you're moving in the wrong direction. 
if your temper is getting worse, if your fuse is getting shorter, if your motivations are becoming more selfish, if your actions are more manipulative, you are going the wrong way. You're moving away from Christ. Instead, you should be moving towards Him. And there's a cycle in that movement, in that growth. Because first, you have to recognize where you're going wrong. Where are you getting off track? There has to be a level of, of self-awareness, a level of real honesty with yourself about yourself. And I'm kind of amazed at how unself-aware many people are. Folks who kind of just refuse to stay, take stock of who they are, what they're doing, or what they're feeling. It's just kind of heads down and plow forward regardless of the consequences. Paul talks about a mirror. Holding up a mirror to our souls so that we can see ourselves honestly, recognize how far we are from the image of Christ. And once we recognize that we're off track, then the second thing is we have to repent. Repent simply means to change direction, to turn around, but it's also an emotional word. You need to feel it. You need to feel how you are hurting yourselves, how you are wounding Christ, and how you're hurting others. That's what will motivate the turning to Christ. People can be self-aware and yet then still continue on that same track if they do not repent. And so that's why it's a crucial stage, feeling the hurt. And then third, we return to Christ as the source of true love. Return to Him as the source of all that is healthy and whole and healing. We return to Him in humility, ask for His help again. And then again and again we hit the repeat button because spiritual growth is a process and not an instant fix. We, we're looking for progress, not perfection. Progress towards Christ, so we repeat. And so next year, maybe we'll be closer to Him than we are this year, we, we recognize, we repent, we return, we repeat. That's the cycle. And then you put your name in 1 Corinthians 13. Is this what people would say about you? Joe is patient. Mary is kind. Kim is never jealous. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Put your name into it. It's so easy to read, but boy, so hard to live. Emulating the love personality of Jesus, becoming like him, in the way we treat people. The German reformer Martin Luther once wrote, the higher people are in the favor of God, the more tender they are. That's our goal, to become like Jesus in the way that we live from the inside out, improving the quality of our relationships with God's help. It's not something we do on our own. This is where we really need the work of the Holy Spirit as he shapes and molds us. And in verses 9 through 13, Paul concludes talking about this eternity of love. God's love never fails. God's love never collapses under pressure. We will love imperfectly, but the perfect will come. We see and experience glimpses of His perfection, uh, hints of His kingdom. We experience it already, but not quite yet. We see it, but not perfectly clear. Paul says to, say, to stay focused then on the eternal, because these spiritual gifts at some point they'll cease. So focus on what will not pass away. Focus not on the gifts, but the giver himself. That's what lasts forever. Don't get wrapped up in the wrong things, speaking in tongues, prophecy, all that stuff. Don't get hung up on those things. Instead, focus on the giver, not the gifts. You know, the kind of love described here in chapter 13 isn't easy. In fact, it's the hardest kind of work to do. It is hard to do this. Josh McDowell writes that too often our relationships get reduced to tolerance instead of love. Instead of really pursuing Christ's most excellent way, we kind of just stop. You know, parents, that means you have to do what is harder. When a child throws a tantrum in a store, wanting a toy or a piece of candy, parents must do what is harder. 
It's easy to give in and buy the toy or the candy, but then the child wins and learns that's how I manipulate mom and dad. I just throw a tantrum until I get my, get, get my way. And then by the time they're adults, they are ugly people to be around. Tolerance in our day says, you know, you have to approve of what I do, but love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior goes against God. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I must tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth can set you free. Tolerance says, you must let me have my way. But love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you're worth the effort. Tolerance says to be, or seeks to be inoffensive. Love takes the risk of being offensive. Tolerance costs nothing. Love may cost everything. Our world's definition and experience of love is messed up. We need the Christ way. We need the church to be this classroom where we learn Christ's most excellent way of selfless love. We need koinonia, community. Loving like Jesus is a lifelong process that we learn to do together. That's you and me and all of us learning to live Christ's most excellent way of love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're the example that we're to follow. You're the goal that we're to seek. You're the giver of all the great gifts. So in all this, Lord, we're just trying to take one step closer to becoming more and more like you, Lord. And if there's just one of these qualities where our consciences have been uh, uh, touched today, maybe we've recognized you know, I'm not as patient as I should be. I, I've got a lot of envy in my heart. I've, I've been manipulating people or I'm not very patient. Whatever that one quality might be, Lord, may you help us to repent of that and return to you. And, and Lord, seek your help in developing that and taking that one more step closer towards you. Whatever our next step would be, Lord, reveal it to us so that we can become more and more like you and walk in your most excellent way of love. In your name we pray. Amen.